And our next session is on best practices, and it will be presented by Judge Gerald Williams and myself. Uh, this is the first time we've done a class on best practices. How many of you, be honest, how many of you didn't even know we had best practices? How many of you have never read one? All right, that's good. Thank you. All right, uh, so we had one respondent. That's good. Uh, we didn't publish all of the best practices as part of your packet. I'm trying not to kill trees. Uh, we did put a, a few of the newer ones in there, and uh, more obscure ones uh, are in your packet. But for the most part, uh, we do want you to refer to the best practices themselves. And uh, as part of our presentation, we'll show you where to find them. Uh, we have a lot of them, so we're, we're going to go through these pretty fast. Nothing uh, beats actually reading the actual best practice. Uh, so again, we do encourage that. We did a couple years ago go through all of the best practices as a committee and decide to, we eliminated a few of them and combined a few of them. Um, there were a couple I tried to get eliminated and didn't get eliminated, but we're, we're going to go through every single best practice today. So, you know. Okay. The, the purpose of a best practices committee is not to interfere with your judicial discretion or, or anything like that. It's to try to have at least some baseline level of standardization uh, between the justice courts. What happens to you um, if you're a litigant in one court should be basically the same thing that happens to you in, in other courts. Uh, the, you know, we have a mission to try to discuss issues, re resolve pending cases, um, develop methods to um, you know, export excellence to, to ourselves and to other courts maybe even, and then to implementing a best practice. Um, sometimes I, I joke that it's like the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, pirate guidelines. You know, they're, they're, they're more guidelines. They're not, they're not really mandatory, but they're, they're strongly encouraged. And um, at least some people have sat around and, and determined that this is the best way to attack this particular problem. And so that's, that's the goal, um, you know, whether you view them as a pirate code or whether you view them as a policy. But the, the goal is to have some level of standardization, especially when we're uh, in co-located facilities in Maricopa County and you know, a, a business or a, a, a litigant that's facing, uh, has multiple cases going on in multiple courts, shouldn't have to remember, well, this judge, you know, only does it this way. If I go next door, another judge does it completely differently. Um, there's still going to be some of that happening, but to the point that we can keep that to a minimum, that's a good thing. Yes, because we believe consistency is a good thing. Okay, so where do you find it? On the O drive. And so here's the O drive, the OneDriver O drive. And all the way down here, under policies and procedures, you'll see Justice Court best practices. And then you have three choices, civil best practices, court operations, and criminal. And so for criminal, we only have five best practices. And we'll start with the addendum. Okay. The first one, um, uh, I guess the, 
a standard in some municipal courts is that you can do a DUI guilty plea in 10 minutes if you're a judge. That's that if you're going to go pro tem in that court, that's what their standard is. I can't do a DUI guilty plea in 10 minutes. Um, I don't know if anyone else can. There, there are seven forms that go with the DUI guilty plea uh, in, in our system right now. We added another one, and that, that sounds like, my God, why would you add another form, you know, to the DUI uh, process? And that's because we found that even though you tell defendants, okay, this is when you have to do your screening, this is when you have to do your counseling, this is when you have to report to jail, this is when you have to go to a, a victim impact panel, this is where you have to, this is how you do your payment plan, they goof that up. Um, they, they forget at least one of them. You end up doing orders to show cause. So we came up with this form called Addendum to DUI Plea Agreement that just gives them a list of deadlines. They sign for it, and it's it, and there's a sort of a picture of it there. And it, it's it's intended to just be like a checklist for the defendants. It's not intended to make more work for the court clerks or you or anybody else. But um, we don't have any like before or after data if it really worked or not. But um, it, I found that it's it's hard to to hassle people or hold them accountable if you don't tell them what the rules are, if you don't tell them what the deadlines are. And this is just an easy way to tell them, hey, you promised to do your screening by this date, you even signed it, you have to do the screening anyway, you know, to get your license back from motor vehicles. So it shouldn't be a surprise that you should be doing the screening. You said you were going to get your counseling done by this day, why haven't you? Um, and if you give them clear guidelines, it's just a little easier sometimes. All right, the next one is uh, a very long title to, uh, to basically say fair justice, avoiding <laughs> disparate penalties for criminal charges. This, we only gave this one one slide, but this is in your packet. It's at page 14. If you haven't read it before, we really recommend that you do read it. Uh, we do, well, it is for fair justice. We do want to make sure that we manage criminal cases so that defendants do not suffer disparate penalties due solely to their inability to pay a fine. In addition, courts must ensure that failure to pay warrants are quashed when the defendant has paid in full or has appeared in court. Uh, one of the things in there is if, if um, the defendant has shown up in court on a warrant and a judge is there, that we would like a judge to be able to see that defendant. Um, so there is a lot in this, in this uh, best practice. Again, it's at page 14, and we do really recommend that you read that one. The criminal cases followed in the wrong venue. Um, there was no uniformity as to what was happening in, in our courts. Some of them would automatically dismiss it. Some of them would try to transfer it. Some of them, you know, would just would do whatever they, they felt like doing. And it was, it, was, it was frustrating. It was hard for the criminal defense bar and for the prosecutors to know what what would happen. Um, the point of this best practice was um, don't just look at the address and automatically dismiss the criminal case. Um, you don't know what happened. <laughs> you all, all you have is a, a, a ticket, basically. You may not even have a ticket if it's a long-form complaint. And uh, it, it's hard to know if it was filed in the right precinct or not. Generally, almost everything has to be filed in the precinct where the event occurred. Um, where the, the, if it's an assault, it's easy to figure out what precinct the crime occurred in. If it's a DUI, however, and the defendant doesn't pull over 
quickly. They could, in theory, go all the way around the horseshoe on the 101 and clip almost every one of our Justice Court precincts. Um, so in theory, any precinct where the defendant was a drunk driver would be a proper precinct to file that case because the crime occurred there. The same with criminal speeding if they go all the way around the horseshoe. So it, it doesn't have to be just the milepost number where the arrest happened. It may be actually proper someplace else. And so the, the problem with just dismissing it is it gets refiled someplace else. They can't find the defendant, it goes to warrant, um, and it, the defendant gets arrested for a charge that maybe they didn't know they had, even though they were represented by counsel at the case three, minute, you know, three months earlier. And you get this very upset criminal defense attorney saying, well, you knew I represented him. Why did you arrest my guy? You know, why didn't you just send the new charge to me? And they're like, well, the new court didn't know you existed. Um, and and that's, not, that's not a great position. So before we start dismissing cases, we developed this form called Notice of Filing an Incorrect Venue. <laughs> and it basically, um, I'll pass it around, it basically says, hey, prosecutor, we're thinking about dismissing this case. Would you like to try to change your mind? And they can they can put a little offer proof in here saying, yeah, th we think this is in the correct venue, why? And, and here's why. Or they might say, no, go ahead, dismiss it. We, we admit it's in the wrong spot. But rather than just automatically dismiss it and maybe send the case into the netherworld, um, we should give an opportunity for the prosecution first. Or if the prosecution wants to say, yes, transfer it, um, it, it it's, it's more appropriately filed in a different jurisdiction, then we can potentially do that if it's something like a, a, tri a criminal traffic case where it went around. But if, if we don't have jurisdiction to hear the case, then we arguably don't have jurisdiction to transfer the case either. All right, and there is a cautionary tale uh, I was doing a trial on a violation of an order of protection, uh, interfering, interference with judicial proceedings, and during the trial, after the first witness has been sworn, so jeopardy has attached, it becomes clear that the order of protection was violated in an adjoining precinct, not in the precinct um, where it has been filed. And so um, uh, when the motion to dismiss comes, I'm about to dismiss it, and the prosecutor says, wait, wait, we, we have a lower court appeal on this issue. And so I gave them time to go find it, and they found this case from 2008, uh, which ironically was actually in one of the precincts that was at issue here, and where Judge Crane McLennan um, found that jurisdiction to enforce any order of protection issued by any court uh, in the state can be uh, prosecuted in any court in the state. Uh, which I don't believe is a correct interpretation of the statute, but Judge McLennan did. And so based on that, we did proceed on the interfering with judicial proceedings charge. There was a criminal damage charge, which clearly was in the wrong precinct, and there is no lower court appeal saying you can do that. So that one did get dismissed. Uh, so this is one of the reasons why you, know, you give the state an opportunity to respond before you just go ahead and dismiss when you believe that uh, venue is not proper. It doesn't happen very often, but sometimes you you, you may get a, a guilty plea that you just, for whatever reason, don't like, don't agree with. Um, a, a judge can accept a guilty plea, a judge can reject a guilty plea, 
a judge can't change the guilty plea. Um, you you can't you know start you, you can't take the original plea agreement and start you know making your own changes to it. You know, I, I, well I I I don't like 30 days. I think 45 days. You know, no, you, you can't do that. All, all you can do is accept it or reject it. Um, those are your options as the judge. You can't you can't change it. Um, if you reject it, you, the, you're certainly entitled to tell the state and the defense why, you know, you're you're accepting it or rejecting it. But uh, the one of the key things is if you are rejecting the plea, you have to give the defendant an opportunity to withdraw from the plea. You can't just reject it and say, well, he's pled guilty, so the only thing we're here to determine is the sentence. No, it, it, the the defendant pled guilty based on a guaranteed sentence and all kinds of calculations go into that. So you can't, um, and it, it's there on, in the slide, it, the Rule of Criminal Procedure 17.2 uh, E, um, you've got to inform the defendant that um, he, he can he or she can re withdraw from the plea, and then you, you have to tell them if you withdraw from the plea, um, then the, the outcome could be worse. It, you know, it could be better, but it could also be worse. Every now and then, you'll get someone who comes in, and the negotiations have broken down between the prosecutor and the defense attorney, and they'll just come in and say, well, I just want to plead to the court. And I says, well, you're free to plead to the court, but you may not get the minimum. So you may want to go talk back and talk you know, to the prosecutor again. I, well, well, what's your sentence going to be? I'm not going to tell you what my sentence is going to be. You know, you're, you're, that's that's the whole point of plea negotiations. So, if you want a guaranteed sentence to a plea agreement, don't and, and don't put yourself where you, you get into a trap of promising a sentence verbally uh, when the negotiations between the prosecutor and the defense attorney have broken down. And the other uh, concern there is, if they're going to plead to the court, then they have to plead guilty. Or responsible on all of the charges and if they're pleading responsible to civil traffic charges and they're going to get points on all of those charges so even if you suspend the fine they're still going to get the points very good point. okay supplemental proceedings is a is a confusing name because it, it we also talk about it when we use it for judgment debtors exams we use it for maybe a motion to set aside in this context um, it, it's uh, when someone is submitting their case on the record. I, I said in the last class, if you're about to admit a police report, there's a chance you're doing something wrong. Here's an exception to that. If you're admitting a police report, you're doing something okay. And, and so this is someone who is essentially pleading guilty. They just don't want to plead guilty. Um, this happens, say, if they filed a motion to suppress or some kind of evidentiary ruling and they lost. So you've, you've had the evidentiary hearing, they lost. They still think that the stop was wrong. They still think there wasn't probable cause for something. If you plead guilty, you waive a lot of your, your rights on appeal. So they can't plead guilty, but they don't want to have a trial either. So they're like, okay, if, if that evidence is coming in, I'm, I'm probably guilty, but I can't plead guilty. So they'll submit a case on the record and if, if, if you do that, and I've done one of these in maybe 15 years, uh, but if they submit a case on the record, then they'll submit the prosecution to offer some of the things like the defense, you know, the, the police report, things like that, 
as, as evidence, maybe photographs and things like that, and say, well, based on you looking at this stuff, how do you find the defendant? Or oh, I find him guilty. And that that way the defendant's right to appeal is preserved. To do that, though, you've got to go through this form that uh, is in our best practices, and it looks almost exactly like a guilty plea proceeding form. It, it almost all the language is exactly the same. So you almost. go, yeah. So you go except right at the end. <laughs> so you so you go over all the same stuff that you would go over as if they were uh, the defendant was doing a, a guilty plea. You just don't ask them. So you want to plead guilty, right? And, you know, at, at the end, um, you can still find them guilty after the you complete the analysis. But this was a a big deal. Uh, the same judge that was mentioned earlier. Um, held that we did this wrong, and he wanted to have a meeting with us, and you know we had a, 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 a whole big issue with this. So the you can accept it, it's almost like stipulating to a guilty plea, but that but it's it's you're stipulating to the evidence, not just the the outcome. And it, the best example of when I can think of it is 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 when the defendant still wants to appeal something. There are probably other examples of it too. Maybe the the person just doesn't want to plead guilty. They don't want to dispute the evidence, but for whatever reason, they don't want to plead guilty. But the the best example that I can think of is is when they want to preserve an issue for appeal. So, so they give, so you don't talk about the one provision about giving up the right to appeal. That constitutional right. That's not it. That part's not. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, in, in Gerald is serious because uh, I took over a court where uh, this had been remanded for not doing a proper submittal proceeding. <laughs> if you use our form, that's part of the best practice. You will not go wrong. Did you want to talk about the rules, sir? Oh, it's just the it, it this is criminal procedure is, is very heavily rule governed too. The uh, rule 17.7. If the defendant and the state agree. The parties can't submit a case on the record. Both sides have to agree, obviously. You can't have, you know, if the state decided not to have a trial, we just want to offer the police report. No, you can't do that. Obviously, both sides have to agree. 17.7, uh, the court can accept it. Um, and, uh, but you have to, the reason you have to go through our, our, our format is you still have to make the same determination that the defendant is doing this knowingly and voluntarily and intelligently. They're waiving their jury trial, they're waiving all kinds of stuff when they're doing this. They're waiving all the evidentiary objections. So you have to make sure that they understand what they're doing. Okay, and those are the criminal best practices. That's it, uh, just those five. Uh, for some reason, we have a whole bunch of civil best practices. Uh, and uh, there's a list there and, and we'll start going through them. Okay, the first one is called appearance fees for request for garnishment hearings and default actions. I, uh, this one is, I think it's from 2014. Uh, it's, it's one of the older ones. And the, if someone, if a defendant files an answer, we, char we charge them an answer fee. We charge them a filing fee. If they haven't filed an answer, um, but they file a motion to dismiss or whatever their first pleading is, we typically charge some kind of fee. Uh, the Best Practices Committee made it a, a decision and, and it went out that if maybe years have gone by, um, there's a, a default judgment that was issued a long time ago, um, the defendant is appearing for the first time in the case at the garnishment stage, 
and the only thing they're filing is a request to reduce the percentage of the garnishment. We said we shouldn't charge for that. That seems silly to charge a $78 answer fee or whatever. You know, if, if, they're, just, if they're just requesting that that be uh, withheld. I actually, if you're like me, you don't pay a lot of attention to the, the fees uh, that, that the court clerk, you know, they, they, I, don't, I tried to memorize them once and they keep changing, so I don't bother anymore. I have to look them up when I'm doing my own uh, judgment forms. But I actually went out and asked, I said, so when someone files a, a request for a hearing, uh, I asked my own court this morning, I said, when someone files a request for a hearing, um, and they haven't appeared before and they're just requesting a, a garnishment hearing and really the only thing they're requesting is that it be reduced from 25% uh, to 15%. Do we charge them an answer fee? Oh yeah, we do that. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> we, we agreed not to do that three years ago and somehow that drifted back into practice. So, um, again, it's optional. These, If your court wants to charge filing fees to be consistent on everything, you're free to do that. It just seems kind of lousy uh, to, to charge someone to re reduce their garnishment. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so that's the, that's the whole point behind that. that also, the fees are, are almost never collected. Um, if, if you do a deferral or, or a waiver, they're never, they're never collected. And you get attorney's fees, I think. Okay, and so uh, the next, uh, we, we have a couple of best practices on attorney's fees. Um, since we're going through so many best practices in 90 minutes, we're not going to spend a lot of time on attorney's fees. If you um, listen to the podcast and go to um, the O-Drive or Hightail, you'll find a lot of uh, uh, the previous classes and materials on that. Uh, Steve Cattell is going to do a class on that next Friday. Um, so uh, we're just going to breeze through attorney's fees. Uh, but we do have, the, the first one is attorney's fees, awards, and default judgments. And that says when there is no hourly rate, a flat, and if there is no flat fee or China doll affidavit filed, that $500 could be considered to be a reasonable request for a flat attorney's fee in, a, in connection with the default judgment. Now, um, do we still think that's fair? Should, should the committee look to amend this? Speak now or forever hold your peace. I see a hand. Yes. Well, it depends. You get it. We'll talk about it next week. That wasn't the hand I saw. <laughs> I saw that hand. Oh, I'm sorry. I think it should be an individual consideration. Okay. today because cost of living is going up and an attorney shouldn't be locked into a set amount. Um, so the individual consideration is based on the amount of time they spent. If uh, for whatever reason, maybe there's an answer, then the person didn't appear that answer Okay. Please silence your uh, your buzzers. All right, Cattell. Well, the other part of that is, if it's a firm that does these continuously and they're spending their paralegal spends 15 minutes, it could be a lot less. But the judge is correct. The, our courts have basically said the reasonable fee is going to be based upon the time it takes, the reasonable time, the hourly rate, the reasonable hourly rate, and seven other factors, including which typically charge. What's the what's the amount issue? You charge $500 for a $1,000, $2,000 uh, dispute on, uh, on a civil matter. That's 25%, uh, 50%. You know, there are problems. Uh, but it has to be an individualized basis and a look back. 
our court is very strong on you look back at the work that was done and even if it is a flat fee for $500, but it turns out your paralegal spent 15 minutes, no one showed up at the hearing, $500, that's $2,000 an hour. That's going to be pretty high. Okay. Uh, thank you. And so uh, when there are hourly rates, our best practice uh, asks you to confirm that the complaint or counterclaim requested attorney's fees, determine whether an award of attorney's fees is allowed by law, evaluate the China Doll affidavit and any supporting documents. If you're going to reduce hourly rates, uh, you should document the reasons for the reduction on a form or in a minute entry, and we do have a form. And Steve just confirmed that at the class next Friday, he's going to work with that form. That form was drafted by uh, Judge Gerald Williams. It includes case law on it, uh, and Popco has indicated uh, that that he is going to look favorably upon that form. So um, we think that that is our best practice. The other best practice that addresses attorney's fees address contested attorney's fees and it does develop criteria to assist the JP in determining the reasonableness of attorney's fees. And again, we do want you to use the, the, rule, the form for ruling on attorney's fees. All right. There's, um, we get a variety of, of different things from bankruptcy courts, and, and sometimes we can match them to a case, sometimes we can't. Um, so the, we just wanted something that was kind of consistent. Um, and so if a match can't be found, we decided that the best thing to do was to return the document to the bankruptcy court, you know, and say, we couldn't match this with anything. So they at least know. Um, if, if, the, if the person's net, because frequently what we get from a bankruptcy court will have a person's name and it will have the court at, our court address. It may or may not have a case number or our own case number. If it has any case number at all, it's going to be the bankruptcy court. And if it's uh, a name that's unique, then maybe we can match it with something. If it's a name that's very, very common, you know, and you type in a name and there are 800 of them pop up, but we can't really do anything with that. We don't know if, if, if uh, sure, the federal court has put us on notice that someone with this name has filed bankruptcy and they may have something in our court, but we can't send out a standard bankruptcy notice to every conceivable person, you know, that on, on every conceivable, you know, case that has those. So that was just the point of that. We we decided to. We can't tell a federal court what to do. I I don't recommend anyone try to, to do that. But just send it back saying, hey, we can't match this with anything. Um, on the buyers of consumer debt. Uh, at the time this best practice was written, and if you if if you want a lot of background on the, the debt buying industry and buyers of consumer debt, um, from the these are the credit card the people that buy credit card debt primarily. Sometimes there's medical stuff in there, but it's, it's almost always consumer debt, usually credit card debt. Um, the it's not an especially great article, but it, it it's one that has decent background on it, and it has uh, it, it's focused on Arizona law, both what was going on in the Arizona legislature at the time, what was going on in the Rules Committee at, at the time the Justice Court Rules of Civil Procedure were being written, and what was going on at the national level with the Consumer uh, Product, uh, Consumer, Consumer Federal 
Product Bureau. I'm going to mess that up. Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. That's it. Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. Um, the 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 law review article I wrote is in an obscure journal because it, it's in a it's in a publication called the Journal of Business Entrepreneurship Entrepreneurship and the Law. And you're like, well, why did you send it there? Why did you publish it there? And the, the short answer is because both U of A and ASU rejected my article. <laughs> so um, that's why it's in a law review, a secondary law review, and published in Pepperdine, uh, but by Pepperdine as opposed to something that's in ASU or U of A's law school. The easiest place for you to find it um, is in the Wendell, go to Wendell, and there's actually a judicial law review section. And it's been scanned in there. A hard copy of it's been scanned in. So you can go to Wendell, find it there. And if, if you want a lot of information on the how we got to where we got and, and the, all the background information on the consumer debt buying stuff, that's there, including this best practice form is also in that article. But when these, con these federal consent decrees came out, if, if you read them, they're just devastating. They basically say that you can't trust any of the paperwork coming out of any of these things. And I read them as, you know, wow, these, these, are, these are somehow a consent decree. Somehow the, the collection bar agreed to this really horrific language. And so we all kind of went into a, a panic for a little while. And the most of us, or many of us, just started setting all every case for a default hearing. Every single debt buyer case, we started setting for a default hearing. Because we didn't know what else to do, because there was a these federal, you know, documents that said you couldn't trust the paperwork. I happened to set a whole bunch of them on the same day, and all all the major collection attorneys came up and they said, "Judge, you don't understand. All we consented to was the jurisdiction, and we agreed to pay the fine. We didn't agree to any of this language." And I said, "Oh, well, that does change it a little bit, um, but still, we judges." want options now and so we came up with basically four options um, some people felt it was an ethical issue that the judges shouldn't be used if the defendant um, raised them um, of course on default you can't do that there's no there's no defendant raising any issues so we said okay it will some the one option is you only raises documentation, these extra documentation issues if the defendant does. The second one is you require additional documentation. You say, okay, what you've been su submitting so far is, is not adequate. I want you also to submit this other stuff and here's why. And you can, we, uh, we developed a form for that saying, you know, do you swear to these things? And it has a, a, a blank date for the charge-off date. That's important so you can calculate the statute of limitations. It has a, you know, a blank date for other things. And if the collection attorneys are willing to swear to these forms, then, then that works for us. The other one is set a default hearing. You know, continue to set these for default hearings and just listen to what the, the other side says. And then if it's a summary judgment, set those for oral argument. Make them come in and explain to you what's going on. Um, Another option is to is to have a cover sheet, which is was also that was the form, that was a cover sheet. This is use a cover sheet. Um, this is actually stolen from Superior Court. They use a very similar cover sheet uh, for their for their default judgment. So it's not too much of a stretch. But if if 
you go back and you read this stuff and you look at it as a judge and say, you know, I'm not comfortable with the level of documentation I'm getting in these cases. I want this. I want this additional form. You, you can do that. You need to give probably some kind of notice, you know, to, to the other side, but say, hey, on, on these consumer debt cases, I, I, don't, I don't trust the paperwork. I don't like it. I don't think it's adequate. I want this additional form. I want you to complete this additional information. There's, that's an option you have. Um, since the consent decrees have come out and since this other stuff has come out, we actually get much better stuff now than we used to. I know the new judges think they're getting junk. You, you should see what we used to get. <laughs> we used to really get junk. I mean, we, we, would, we would get credit card cases that didn't have credit card statements. You know, and so it was as big of a mess as maybe you think it is now. It used to be significantly worse. So this is a this is a thing where, you know, maybe the federal government being proactive, maybe judges being proactive, actually made the system better. It may not be adequate in in your opinion yet, but it's at least better than what it used to be. Um, yeah, we didn't have witnesses. Huh? We didn't even have witnesses. Remember, they didn't even bring witnesses. Oh no, they wouldn't bring. Yeah, we had. I, I had a case where a, an attorney showed up, and his only case, his, his entire case was going to be cross-examining the defendant. You know, and he, he called his first witness and said, he called the defendant as a witness. And, this is your debt, right? Nope. Your Honor, make him answer the question. I'm like, dude. <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, and, and, and I had that, and, and it was a Home, it was a home Depot debt. <laughs> And the defendant said, nope, never been in a Home Depot. <laughs> and I'm like, even I have been in Home Depot, okay? <laughs> but if the guy denies it, dude, you didn't prove your case. You know, so I just, yeah, it was just, it's one of those things where if, if you're an attorney, you're really embarrassed that an attorney is doing that kind of stuff. You think, how, how in the world did you, you know, how, how do you prove your other cases if you don't think you have to prove, you know, this one? I, I get the as limited jurisdiction tort judges. We're not federal district judges, but you know, if, if you wouldn't pull that stuff downtown, you shouldn't pull it in our courts either. Um, the next one's a big chart. I think. Yeah, uh, civil. Uh, yes, man. You have enormous latitude in how you do your uh, pretrial conferences. I do my pretrial conferences maybe a little different than other people. Um, if an answer is filed and I set the case for a pretrial conference, I bring both both sides up here. Like they may be appearing by phone or one may be appearing by phone, but both sides come in and I, I explain, I, I, I say, look, the purpose of a pretrial conference is to check in on the status of a case, see where it is and see what needs to happen next. I go, I go over disclosure statements. I, I go over, I, if the case can settle, great. If it can't, then we go from there. I explain what a stipulated judgment with a covenant not to execute is to the self-represented litigants. And they explain the trial procedure to the self-represented litigants too. If um, you don't do that um, and you're not required to, your first chance to interact with the litigant might be the morning of the trial. And then it's too late. You can't explain anything to them then because they don't have the stuff with them. So I, I, I go ahead and do it that way. A lot of people have both sides come in and they send them in a conference room down the hall and they hope that by talking to each other down the hall they'll settle the case. That works too. Um, some courts used to set every single case for mediation. That can work too. Um, I'm hypersensitive about 
uh, attorney's fees and potentially wasting people's time. So I don't like to set, if there's an attorney on the case, I don't like to automatically set up for mediation because that has the potential to rack up more attorney's fees. So I also only set a case for mediation if both sides want to go. If, if one side's dug in at zero and the other side's dug in at, at nine grand, that's, that's not a great case for mediation. And, and really, even though it's a civil lawsuit, it's really a failed romance in the background. Um, that, that's a lousy case for mediation. So I don't set those. But you can, you can do, you, you have enormous latitude in how you do your pretrial conferences, as long as you do something. <laughs> as long as you, you, you manage stuff some way. Because you don't want the first time people, you know, are, are getting information to be the morning of the trial, because it's too late at that point. Does anyone have any questions on that? Okay. The next two um, are are com are designed for uh, complaints, uh, lawsuits by tenants, and the both of the forms are up there. The the first one, the there are a couple different ways a a, a tenant can complain about a landlord not providing essential services. Um, they can do it. Uh, as a counterclaim, they can do it as an independent lawsuit. Um, they have to provide notice and an opportunity for the landlord to the fix the problem, which is why there's a blank in there for that. Unfortunately, what many tenants do is rent strike. They just stop paying the rent. Uh, when they do that, there's a chance they're going to be evicted for non-payment of rent. Actually, a really good chance they're going to be evicted for non-payment of rent. So this provides a, a way um, for when you have a tenant come to your front counter and the tenant says, you know, it's, it's been really hard. My landlord won't fix my air conditioning. I'm, I'm still paying my rent, but I don't think that's fair. Your, your staff can give them one of these forms that can fill it out, and, and, and it can go from there. Um, it doesn't happen that often that you, you need one of these things, but it happens frequently enough, maybe um, once every eight months or so. You know, some, someone will come in and do your front counter, and and the and what we used to give them was a counterclaim form and say fill it out, and the counterclaim form is not really adequate. It doesn't it doesn't work, and there are instructions on when to use it. The next form, eviction complaint by tenant unlawful ouster. This is a, a no kidding, pure forcible entry and detainer case. We get very few of them, but this is a tenant saying, hey, I was locked out. I want back in. You know, they, they, I, I was locked out of my apartment. I'm, I'm not a, you can do that to a commercial tenant. You can't do it to a, a residential tenant. You know, I, I was locked out. I want back in. Um, that's what this form is for. And it's, it's, a, it's a separate type of action. We, and the, the form explains how to use it there. Um, we don't get them that often. But again, if you don't have a form for it, it's really hard to tell a separate self-represented litigant to hand them the civil complaint form, and they just fill this out on their own. Sarah, I have a question. Yeah. So the complaint by the tenant for failure to provide essential services, is that a small claims case? Because it's not a forcible entry case. What is that? I mean, how's it processed? What's the, what's I think put we into the system? Is it? It's probably put into, it won't be a small claims case. It'd be put into the system as a regular civil case, probably. A civil, okay. Yeah. Okay. But the other one would be processed as an eviction. The, sure. As an eviction, because you've got a, a possession issue there. But she calls it reverse evictions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> reverse. That's a good way to. Uh, for years, we've called our, our eviction cases forcibles, but that's not really right. They're really special detainer action. Um, when we did the rules, we tried to use the word eviction action just to avoid the whole word forcible. But that's it. And we did uh, 
the copy of the complaint by tenant for failure to provide essential services is in your packet at page 17. Uh, this next one, conducting eviction initial appearances and trials, is in your packet at page 18. Uh, before we address this one, uh, Gerald, I can put your law review article in our Hightail collection. Oh, okay. Uh, and I hope that you're making use of the Hightail location where we've got all of the classes that we've done over the last five years in there. Um, so, for conducting eviction initial appearances and trials, the reason we did this one is we had several judicial complaints uh, involving several judges and several remands uh, back from Superior Court uh, for our initial appearances for evictions. And what would happen is the judge would handle the matter at the bench and um, and make a ruling from the bench. And, and the problem with doing, there's a couple problems of doing it at the bench. One, the microphones might not pick up everything, which is one reason why stuff would get remanded. The others, you might forget um, things like substantive due process and allowing people to cross-examine each other. Uh, so we did this to encourage judges to adhere closely to Rule 11. Uh, if, if you do have to proceed to a trial, then send preferably send the people back to the tables to actually do the trial, because the judicial complaints would be, um, I was expecting a trial and, and didn't get one, and that was the trial as far as the judge was concerned. So um, that, that is why we adopted this best practice. All right, the next one is dismissal after settlement. And for you full-time judges who are concerned about your time standards, this is to favor you. Uh, we don't want settlement agreements that say uh, we want this to stay on the court records for on the inactive calendar for six months to allow the defendant to pay. Uh, if you've settled, then we're going to dismiss the case, and if the person doesn't pay, then they can uh, file a new suit based on the failure to, to um, comply with the settlement agreement. On disruptive and vex vexatious litigants, those are really kind of two different problems, <laughs> uh, although a, a vexatious litigant can be also disruptive. But um, you have a, a, a duty and an obligation to control the courtroom, and usually the record is your friend. Um, so if, if, you, uh, if you just say, you know, everything's being recorded, you know, you know, please be, you know, please be calm, and, and you know, it's not your turn to talk. The, the Commission on Judicial Conduct used to have a shut-up rule. They didn't like when, when judges told people to shut up. So I, I remembered that, and I, I try never to tell anybody to shut up. I say, stop talking, it's not your turn to talk. You know, I, I say things like that. I'll, I'll hold a hand up like a stop sign. You know, I'll, 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 I'll try to get people... You whisper it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hold up a sign, you know, or, or something. But... Um, there, there are different ways. Vexa a vexatious litigant is someone who just sues everybody they see. Um, I had a guy in in my court. I I haven't seen him in a long time, and I think unfortunately he may have died. I don't want to necessarily wish that on anyone, but he he was one of the people that pulled the oxygen cart, you know, around with it. And the only reason he hasn't sued you is he hasn't met you. He he literally <laughs> sued everybody he encountered with, whether it was you know the, the 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 car wash scratched his car the you know everything and if you type his name into our 
our small claims database, she'll get over 100 cases. He, he filed, you know, just he was he was literally suing everybody, and um, we didn't have a, a policy, we didn't have a good procedure at the time, so I just stopped granting his waiver filing fees. Um, and when I did that, some of his cases started to go away. But there is a process to where you can apply to have our presiding superior court judge issue an order that says you can't file anything in any court in Maricopa County unless you run it by me first and I gave you permission to file it. That usually stops them. Um, if you're, I guess if they're really persistent, that, that, that won't. But that's, that's our remedy for people like that gentleman. And the statute for waivers um, of fees does allow you to, de to um, decline to grant a waiver if the person's actually been declared a vexatious litigant. Good point. Uh, so. All right, uh, the next one is ensuring access to justice for self-represented litigants. Uh, Gerald insisted on putting our pictures up there. <laughs> uh, and, and the reason that picture is there is because that best practice did win a strategic agenda award for enhancing professionalism in our courts from the state Supreme Court. Uh, we're not going to talk about that any further than to show Gerald's picture. Uh, because we've okay, done... Okay, this is audio. The, the records reflect that Charles is also in this picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, we do have several, several other classes. We usually do at least one a year on this. Uh, there's a very long podcast of the original presentation that does include Chief Justice Bales and uh, uh, Presiding Judge Janet Barton uh, as part of that presentation. Uh, so if you haven't read it before, please read that best practice. If you um, please download and listen to that podcast. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, Judge Huberman did one on judicial demeanor that relied heavily on this best practice. Fred, did you have something? I'm just curious. To, I'd like to know when that picture was taken. If it was taken in, in normal or business. This was at the leadership conference in Flagstaff about 2016. 2015. Yeah, it was. Is this self-authenticating? It is not. <laughs> no, and it doesn't. It's not even. It doesn't purport what it purports to be either. Um, uh, uh, I, it was. It was snowing that day. I remember that. We. Um, we weren't. I, I, I've never been a presiding judge, so I wasn't invited to the conference. We just. We were invited only for the purpose of accepting the award at the conference, and so I, I, I drove up to Flagstaff. Um, the, the governor spoke bef right before our award, I think, or maybe right afterward, and he flew, which I found phenomenal that you would fly from to Flagstaff, but he did. Did they leave the plane running? I don't know, um, but yeah. So we, we drove up there, got our award, and, and left, basically. Our, our next one is actually our newest best practice, um, and this says uh, eviction complaints that do not substantially comply with eviction rule, rules. And what this was intended to address is the change in the eviction rules that said that um, eviction complaints have to indicate when they're subsidized housing complaints. Uh, and uh, we were getting several 
uh, landlords that were slow to, inf uh, to comply with that rule. Uh, and so we decided that that rule was important enough uh, that, the, uh, that the appropriate dis uh, thing to do at that point would be to dismiss the complaint without prejudice and make them refile to comply with that rule in particular. We discussed just letting them amend the complaint, but if they amend the complaint, it almost defeats the purpose of the, the rule. So the, the whole point was to put everyone on notice that, hey, this is a Section 8 case, this one's different. You know, you, you need to treat this one differently. Um, so that's, that's where we came down on that one. And that one is included in your packet at page 21. So you'll see we just adopted that one in April. <coughs> and the next one is HOA post-judgment fees. Do not include in any judgment assessment fines, late fees, attorney's fees, or similar charges that do not become due and owing until after the date of judgment. And if the form of judgment contains language awarding reaccruing or post-accruing amounts, strike such language. So is that clear? So the judgment is, other than the interest, it, it's a number, and it doesn't say, and, it, and this increases by $65 every month until, you know, it, it's just this amount plus interest. It, it sounds kind of remarkable, but we were routinely getting judgments that, requ that requested future assessments mm -hmm. as, as part of the language. So the, 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 the last paragraph of the form of judgment would be, um, you know, we, they, owe, they owe this past money and they also owe future money. And so we're going to go ahead and make the future money part of this judgment. And we're like, no, um, you can't, it's, it's not even a some certain at that point. But I, I think I struck one as recently as last week. Um, so it, it's a it's surprise. So it's somewhat surprising sometimes what they try to sneak in. And it's a little harder to do in EDMS than it used to be when you just drew a line through it. So now in EDMS, you got to figure out how to put that line through that. But uh, you need to do it. All right. The next one is employees of HOAs or their management companies appearing in small claims. And so this best practice says that courts should request that the HOA submit specific sufficient written proof of compliance in accordance with ARS 22-512. And uh, so what do you think the remedy is? If they don't, it is not to dismiss. The best practice is that the case should be continued. Um, this one was written before I was on the committee. Yeah. I one of the the, the small they're, they're they're dueling sets of proposed small claims rules um, that are under consideration right now, and I I don't know how that's they're going to be sorted out. Um, the set that was proposed by uh, some of the people in this room uh, doesn't require uh, a, a document every time someone appears in small claims court. They say yes. They can verbally say yes. Um, appearing on behalf of XYZ Corporation or, or whatever, and that's, that's going to be considered sufficient. The other set of rules proposed by the AOC committee wants a piece of paper in every single small claims case saying that, yes, this person is certified. Uh, this person has the authority to represent my business in this small claims case. 
So we may have, well, depending on how that, those rules come out, we may have to revisit that, that one. Question? Yeah. Is there a rationale for treating HOAs differently than other companies? I think at the time, well, I, I don't remember. We've had lots of discussions about making it comfortable for HOAs to appear in small claims court, for lack of a better word, uh, because otherwise they'll, they'll hire attorneys and it'll be worse for the people uh, that that are trying to pay, that, that can't pay their, their assessments. Um, so I, I don't know if that if this was part of that thought process or not. What, what prompted this was the change in the statute a couple of years ago. Um, what, what this is envisioning is not an employee of the HOA coming in, but the HOA has hired a management company, and so now you've got an employee, an employee of the management company that is working for the HOA that is appearing. And that was a change in the statute, so this is to address that. The next one um, was designed to avoid a, an, a, an appearance problem more than anything else, but the, there, there were some, some examples of some inappro arguably inappropriate things happening. If, if, you're, if you're a pro tem judge and you're also a landlord attorney, you shouldn't hear eviction case. You shouldn't hear the eviction calendars. It could be somewhat unnerving, no doubt, if um, well, I'll, I'll pick on the, you know, someone from your firm uh, is is presiding and community legal services comes in and sees you're the judge. Um, or the Arizona Republic. Yeah, or the Arizona Republic. <laughs> or other uh, attorneys who know we're going to know they did it wrong. I'm just saying that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just saying. yeah. Um, it could be somewhat un unnerving if, if because it, 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 it looks like an in insight deal. Oddly, there's, there's not the same thing on criminal defense attorneys presiding over criminal trials. Um, but uh, since landlord cases move so fast and are radically change someone's life so greatly, um, it, it's it's an important that we essentially bend over backwards to not just be fair to people, but um, also create the appearance and let everyone know that they're being fair to people. It, it even if you're really fair to someone, it doesn't help if they leave the courtroom thinking they were treated unfairly. And there is a particular horror story that led to uh, this best practice, and I'm not going to say that for the record, um, but a lot of the best practices are a result of something that actually occurred. Yeah. They have a policy on dogs in the courthouse, too, that was actually uh, <laughs> it's the result of a, of a bad situation. Um, okay, lease break fees. This is... This is an, sort of an exception to the general rule that you enforce contract provisions um, usually strictly in, unless something uh, unusual is, is going on. Uh, a, a lease break fee is, is a type of what lawyers would call a liquidated damage. A liquidated damage is something you put in a contract when you can't figure out what the damages are going to be, but you want to negotiate what the damages are going to be beforehand. And the example that I use is um, a banquet hall um, rental for a wedding. Um, if everybody shows up for the wedding and the banquet hall's not 
ready to go or it's locked or you know or whatever that's worth something what's that worth I don't know nobody knows for sure but you can negotiate it in advance that hey if, if the banquet hall's not ready then the bride gets five thousand dollars and the bride's gonna want maybe more for, than five thousand dollars but that's the negotiated thing uh, in the contract in contrast almost all landlord tenant damages are very very easy to calculate for breach of a lease it's going to be obviously any unpaid rent plus late fees plus court costs plus damages and, and other damages in really limited circumstances and then that's going to be the amount so there's a case law that says if the liquidated damage is really just a penalty then it's unfair and you shouldn't enforce it and that's how we came down on on that particular uh, provision. Question? Yes. So if a lease provision says that uh, there's a violation of the lease resulting in um, uh, an eviction action, that um, incentives, move-in incentives. This is different than rental concessions. Okay. Yeah, so rental concessions still still are enforceable. Okay. Yeah, that's that's not a lease break fee. There'll be they'll they'll even call it a lease break fee sometimes in the lease. All right, but um, incentives are not considered lease. No, no, no. Rental concessions are still enforceable. Okay. And then um, <laughs> again, on that particular topic, um, you have to watch out for that something that's termed a concession is in fact a concession that is a, a credit or a benefit conferred to the tenant for moving in rather than um, simply listing that but the, the, the benefit was not was not a real benefit. In other words, they got to move in for half rent for the first month or something like that. Then that comes back as a concession uh, as opposed to calling something concession that was not in fact Okay. I haven't I haven't seen that problem that often. Well, what but about what about the what about the additional fee for um, you know if we file an action there we're going to charge you a uh, that we have to resolve this in court. I, I there's different ways that they I've seen that term, but sometimes it's fifty dollars, sometimes it's more than that. Th those are kind of like notice fees and things like that. I yeah. I, I tend to enforce those. The okay. They don't. They don't fit into that. No, well. lease break fees are usually really. There's sometimes it's like two, three times the amount of the rent on top of you know everything. When they're moving out, they're gonna or being evicted, they're probably gonna be on the hook for the following month's rent anyway. Not as part of the eviction case, but as part of a subsequent small claims case or or whatever. Just because when the landlord has a duty to mitigate damages, they probably can't flip it and rent it again in one month. Um, the next one is uh, motions for uh, well, there's a whole variety of service of process issues that are coming up. <laughs> but this is one where we combined three best practices into one because uh, we had all these different service of process issues. Um, the the first one for motions on certain. If, if you're, before you grant a motion for alternative service, there should be some kind of description, there should be a something from a process server explaining all the failed attempts to, to serve. And otherwise you shouldn't be, be granting that. Motions for alternative service require some time of detailed factual description of how personal service has been inadequate. You know, we, we've been to the house three, these three days, you know, we hear the TV running 
inside these two days, the car out front is the same. They won't, they won't open the door. You know, they won't. Okay. Then, then something like that, or, or we've gone through skip tracing. We can't find them. The people living at the house now don't know where they are. There's no porting address. Um, we contacted these commercial databases. They can't find them either. Um, so we're, we're going for the last known address, something like that. The next one, um, it's just no pointless postings. Uh, before the court grants any uh, default judgment, the court must determine whether the moving party adequately complied with the alternative service order. Uh, if if the, the last known address is a vacant house, requiring that something be posted at the vacant house doesn't really do it. When you're doing your alternative service things, maybe you shouldn't you require that. I'm real big on uh, everyone likes to use certified mail. I also like to use first class mail. So I type in, you know, certified and first class on this stuff because I want people to actually get it. Um, no one, people don't pick up their certified mail. Uh, no, no good news comes by certified mail. That's just how life is. So if you if you want them to actually get it, I think sort of I think regular mail, first class mail works as well. Um, but you have to determine. If before you do a default, if they're likely to have actually re received notice of it or not, uh, don't per the next one is don't permit service on the statutory agent of the employer. Um, there's one large Arizona-based convenience store uh, chain where, for some reason, the everyone wants to serve the st their statutory agent. I won't say what that is, but it has a single letter with a circle around it, <laughs> so you can figure out who, who it is. For some reason, people think that if you work there and you can sue somebody by suing the statutory agent for that corporation. No, it, that's crazy. It's, it's not the stat agent's job to go hunt down their employees. It's not the HR person's job to go hunt down their employees. If you want to personally serve them in the parking lot, fine, but, you, you, but serving you shouldn't be granting a, a motion for alternative service on someone's stat agent. And then... Hey, Carol, is that a civil suit? So if I'm going to sue Rachel and she works for someplace, I'm going to serve the statutory agent for that employer to serve her personally? No, you're not. No, no, no is that what the yeah, scenario is? No, yeah, people, that? people try that all the time. Yeah, okay. Especially some of the uh, title loan places. Really? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Get annoyed if the amount of requests for alternative service were the proof uh, attempted services vacant, 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 and they want to serve the vacant house. Yeah, yeah. That's why we did the no, <laughs> no pointless postings. Yeah. Yes. That won't, that won't help. Um, on the state government, don't order a state government to do something. You, you probably don't have that authority. Um, so, and don't allow just blanket service on the Department of Administration. If you want to sue, sue someone who works for the state of Arizona, the Department of Administration gets really annoyed if, if you know, they work for Game and Fish and, and you try to serve them. In fact, the, the Attorney General's office specifically said, you guys need to stop doing this. Um, so um, that was the, the genesis of that mispractice. And one more point on this is before you do a default judgment, when there's been alternative service, please make sure that the affidavit of service complies with what the alternative service was. Because like Cheryl just indicated, I also will always require service by regular mail in addition to certified mail. And sometimes the 
Affidavit of service just says they posted and sent by certified mail, and if it doesn't say they sent by regular mail, then they're not getting a default judgment. So uh, make sure you look at the affidavit as well. All right, so procedures for ongoing garnishment actions in cases with expired judgments. If a garnishment or other collection action was begun prior to the judgment expiring, then it can continue. No garnishment or other collection can be brought based on a judgment that expired prior to the date of the collection action's filing. This actually has nothing to do with the zombie judgment issue that arose last year. This was this is an older best practice. And then the next one is uh, recalling suspensions for civil defaults. This is part two of fair justice. Uh, so if you haven't looked at this one, um, please uh, look at this because it's the companion to the criminal. Each court should have a considered policy and may take the additional step of having a standard, a standing administrative order authorizing staff to resolve defaults and recall suspensions. And the court should inform the defendant that if they were going to be short, late, or miss a payment, to contact the court to adjust the payment plan to stay on track. Uh, we want to do that to ensure um, that we'd, we'd rather have people have their, the, their driver's licenses remain valid. It's much easier for them to get to work to pay off their fines and to stay out of trouble if they have a valid driver's license rather than um, them remaining suspended or being suspended for a non-payment. Okay. There's a provision that I've never seen used in the eviction rules um, where someone can request that the judgment be satisfied um, if they're, they're trying to pay off the plaintiff, but the plaintiff is is unavailable or missing or, or whatever. Um, if uh, there wasn't any statutory authority for that rule until the last legislative session um, when uh, that bill was adopted, and it was adopted as an amendment to Title 22, so um, in whatever the magic day in August is, August 24th or or whatever, um, when all the, the, the bills become effective that were passed last session, um, will have the ability not just on eviction cases, but on regular cases in, uh, in justice court and in small claims court to, if the defendant is trying to pay off the judgment, but the plaintiff is unavailable because they're, they're missing, they're dead, a different corporation now owns the apartment complex, whatever the issue is, they can actually file a motion to compel satisfaction of judgment, pay that amount into the court or prove that they paid it, and then the court can deem the judgment satisfied. So they can go on and clear that off their credit. Um, that's a, we will, we're in the process of developing a form, at least for Maricopa County, JPs to use for that. So we may have to revisit the, the eviction one. But right now the eviction rules we're just sort of, there's a paragraph in there that lets you do this just for eviction cases, but I've never seen it used. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it used either. On we, we, we can go ahead and delete this one. I think so, yeah. So that should be on the agenda. And by the way, you can tell the best practices that Gerald wrote um, compared to the ones I, I write, because the ones he wrote have much longer titles than the ones I write. That's not quite true. <laughs> anyway. Signing, believe it or not, there's a, there's a big fight we had for, for some of the newer judges on whether or not we should be required as judges to individually sign every writ of garnishment or whether or not our signature could be stamped. Um, and I said no. And the bench voted to sign them. And we're like, ugh. 
And, and so we were signing every writ of garnishment. Um, and then the bench said, we don't like this. And so they went back and we did a best practice saying, no, you, you, can, um, you can use the judge's stamp for every, for, this is different than writs of restitution, they need a signature. But we were literally, every time there's, a, think of all the garnishments you have, if the judge had to personally sign all of those. We were, we were personally signing all of those because of the, the language that's when the stat, people argued that the language in the statute required it. I said that that's the same language that's in the talks about eviction actions and other things. We don't sign those. Um, but for a while, we were actually signing all our writs. We decided that we don't need to do that anymore. And that's where the, that's where the best practice came Wait, from. Wait, so weren't we taught to check the answer and then sign the writ? No, that's the order continuing lane. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 yeah. Yeah, this is, this right, is right. every but time a guard. Yeah. But some courts, I mean, from a pro tem's point of view, half of the courts that I pro tem and still make me sign, they leave them for me, I think. So there's 50 with 50 pages. So there's six pages for 50 garnishments. So some judges still aren't doing that. Okay. Well, again, these anyway. are these are only guidelines, but there's there's no, they're, they're strongly recommended guidelines. But the clerk, then, even if the judge isn't there, the clerk can stamp them like a, like a summons. Exactly. Right? Nice. All right, the next one is our second newest best practice. I'm particularly proud of this one uh, because we brought together some, uh, some plaintiff's attorneys and some defense attorneys uh, to, and put them in a room and told them no one gets out alive until they've come to a decision on what we're <laughs> going to do about this, basically. Uh, and, and the issue here is, you know, you've all seen it, nearly every complaint um, says Enrique Medina, and uh, Jane Doe Medina, um, or just Jane Doe, and uh, what we would have is wildly different things of courts doing different things. If the, if the service of process said a woman um, accepted service who uh, was uh, Melissa Medina, uh, Enrique's wife, uh, and then that court would go ahead and change the caption to Enrique and Melissa Medina. Uh, and just there wasn't any standardization of what courts were doing. Other uh, law firms would file notice of amended caption. Uh, well, that's wonderful, except there's nothing in the rules that allows you to file, uh, that says you can file a notice of amended caption and just change the caption. Uh, so we put them in a room. Uh, it took a few months, uh, but they did come back with a best practice that does require the substitution of the true name of a defendant by filing an amended complaint under Rule 119. A motion to amend the complaint is not required if the amended complaint is filed within 21 days of the answer being filed. A motion is also not required if the amended complaint is filed within 21 days of a motion to dismiss being filed. The court should freely grant motions for leave to amend the complaint before judgment to substitute a true name for a fictitious one. This is what we want them to do, is to file motions to amend. The opposing party can, can file an opposition to it. If the original complaint was properly served, the amended complaint must be served on the defendants and may be served on the defendants by first class and by certified mail. And that does cite to Justice Court Rules 116 and 119. So any questions about this one? It's, it's sort of easy because they agreed to follow the rules of civil procedure. 
because before that they really weren't. Um, it helps. The, the biggest thing is uh, we were worried that the spouses were getting named in judgments when they weren't named in the original lawsuit and that they didn't really have any notice. And while everybody knows Arizona's a community property state, a lot of people probably said, well, it's my husband's, that lawsuit's my husband's problem or that, you know, or, or something like that. And they didn't envision that they would appear on the judgment. The next one is just allowing people to, to defend or to appear for telephonic hearings regarding service by publication. If there's service by publication, you have to have a default hearing, um, especially for us out in surprise. We, we like to let appear, people appear by phone uh, at these at these hearings so you don't have to drive to surprise for when the, if, if a, a good test is if it takes two or three times as long to drive to court as the appearance is, then you should certainly be letting the people appear by phone. Um, I let a, a lot of people appear by phone, so. About pre-trials? I do. Is, there, is yeah. there a best practice for that? There's not a best practice for that, no. Denise, if there were a best practice, it would be in your packet. <laughs> <laughs> Every best practice we have is in the packet. <laughs> but yes, I allow people to appear for pre at pre-trial conferences by phone. Uh, civil pre-trial conferences, I should say. All right, the next one is timelines for service of motions to vacate or set aside judgment. And this, this is another um, gap in the rules that, that Gerald wrote. Uh, the rules, not the best practice. Uh, <laughs> but service by mail is permitted when a motion is filed before the time to appeal is, has expired. Uh, and that's right in Rule 120. Uh, and, and a lot of people miss this, um, but it does have to be personal service once, if, if they're filing a motion to set aside or vacate, after the time to appeal has expired. Um, so it must be personal service. And if the proof of service is filed, you may rule after the time for response has expired. If there is no proof of service filed within 30 days, the judge should deny the motion as not being filed in accordance with the rules or issue an order directing the moving party to file proof of service by a specific date or the motion will be denied. And if a, oh, if a uh, response is filed, um, issue of service yeah. is. <laughs> okay, I don't know what the rest of that was. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, oh moot, moot. <laughs> there, it's so moot. Let's the word moot. All right. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay, and the, the <coughs> final one, this is more of an EDMS issue than anything else, but it, it's very hard in EDMS if an attorney files a pleading or, or a litigant files a pleading with more than one topic in the same pleading. So if, if you get these things, is it motion for summary judgment, response to defense, motion to defense, you know, motion to strike answer. If, if all that stuff is in one pleading, it, it makes it, it gums up EDMS. EDMS is set up for here's the motion, here's the response, here's the reply, here's the motion, here's the response, here's the reply. So if you if you get these convoluted things, you can send them back and say break it up. Um, I don't know if very many people are doing that or not. <laughs> and, that, and that was the one best practice that was under court operations. Remember at the very beginning, um, there there was that category for court operations. That's the only one in it. 
And so, any questions? We actually went through all of the best practices pretty quickly. Any questions? Any Anyone think that there are best practices we don't have that we should have? This is your opportunity. <laughs> Denise just suggested one. Well, I, yes. I the, the issue is because there's some proteins here that our goal has always been, I mean, I've been a protein now almost 20 years. In Superior Court, when I protein, it's very clear. I have very, very, very clear guidelines. This is what I do. <laughs> and when I'm in your court, I have to think, wait, the sun is shining, it's on Thursday, and I'm supposed to, and that's just hard, because I don't want to do something different in your court if the very next door over, if you open the door at the same time, we're doing two separate things. It's, I just think it's, it's like disrespectful to the bench that we don't seem like we're all on the same page. Not that we're in lockstep, but, but I mean, it's just hard to remember, okay, does this judge reduce that? Does just this judge, I love your the new book I just found when I was protecting last week about the what's the range of minimums. That, that It's a really great new way for those of us who are protems to say, okay, this is the lowest I can do and this is what I should be using for that. But that's not always been, do I waive, you know, if, if they've got proof of insurance, do I now waive that fine completely? Because in one court I do and one I can't, and then I feel dumb because I'm asking your clerk. And so I can tell you that we have thought, the pro tems that I've talked to, we really appreciate that there's been some consistency, right? So that you know if I'm in, if I'm in two courts that are side by side or even four that are co-located, it's, it's easier for us to say, well, this is what happens, generally speaking, as long as all of that realm is within the law. So. Mark, did you? Oh, um, it was touched on earlier um, uh, in terms of telephonic appearances. Um, I, I would I would urge more courts to allow uh, in criminal matters uh, uh, to, to come up with some rules or guidelines when a represented party can appear uh, by counsel telephonically. And again, things like distance to the court. A lot of times, um, uh, again, in my practice, I find that um, the, the pretrial conference could be as little as a couple of minutes, but if the drive to the court is half an hour or an hour, then again, that gets built into the cost, and that gets factored into the, the issue of access to justice. It's more expensive because it takes more of a private counsel's time. It means that um, it's more expensive to hire an attorney and get that impacts the ability of uh, individuals to retain counsel and, and all that. So again, if, if the, the bench could start thinking about what are some other cases where the issue of access to counsel, the cost for attorneys, as well as the travel time that attorneys are involved in. There's also, I mean, there's other factors that are related to that, again, uh, scheduling hearings and uh, a, all of us have been in courtrooms where the courtroom is, is packed, and if you count the number of attorneys in there, and you just pick the average hourly rate, you just think about how many, you know, how many, uh, what the billable hourly rate is that's just sitting there in court waiting for their turn. So again, I, I don't know, I don't have any answers, but I'm just presenting that as something for the bench to think about in terms of, again, that all feeds back to access to justice, because if private counsel has to spend an hour in court just waiting around and not actually practically being able to do anything, that gets built into the fee, and that gets built back to the client, and that makes that attorney perhaps less affordable for the person sitting right next to 
next to that person for it. All right, thank you. Susan? Well, I don't know if it's a good comment or not, but I want to go back to Denise's idea. Um, I kind of had an aha moment because, you know, I've litigated and talked to other lawyers about litigating justice courts before I came into administration. And I, I kind of realized, well, there's the rules and there's the statutes and there are things that have to be complied with and then the best practices, which a lot of people follow, but when they're not followed, I guess, as a, as a, litig as a litigant or as a lawyer lit representing litigants, there can be that perception of like, wait, why are the rules so different in one court to the other? But then I was musing on that. I was like, well, that's because there's best practices and then there's the real rules, which we have to follow, but then the best practices we may or may not. And so I was thinking, okay, so what's the solution, right? Make all the best practices statutes. Well, that would work. Um, <laughs> but I think really that this is the best way to go, right, is to say this is a best practice and this is, and this is recommended. And so it, just, it was just an aha moment of like why the lack of perception. I don't think it's useful to share that, right, with litigants. I don't know how to share that in a way where they get the sense that there's, there's things that are discretionary and there's things that are not discretionary. I guess that's all. All right, anyone else with a suggestion for the Best Practices Committee? Okay. Uh, of the people that are judges here, um, how many require the defendant to come to every criminal pretrial conference and how many are okay if the defendant waives his presence, his or her presence as long as a defense attorney is there? Because I, 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 I don't, yeah, I, I waive. I, I, I don't, yeah, I, do you, do, you, do you require the defense to come or do you, see, I, I don't either. They have the motion, there'll be a motion to allow them to not appear but the attorney's there representing Yeah. Yes. My theory is, if they have an attorney representing them, they probably need to be able to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I always, but I know there's some some courts that want the defendant there every time too, and obviously you can't have a guilty plea if the defendant's not there, and maybe that adds one more pretrial conference, but um, I. I, I look for ways to make people not to come to our building, so uh, maybe I'm, I'm different in that regard. All right, please remember to turn in your evaluations. If you need your parking validated, go down to the second floor. Uh, thanks for coming. Good job. Cheers. <laughs>